This episode of Jesuitical is brought to you by Sarah Drury, Luke Morgan, Patrick and Elise Crawford, Elise, Sarah Moon, Christian Mochek, Amanda Zagarlic, Elizabeth Goak, Teresa Coda, Robert Barramond, Rachel Kelly, Susanna Reck, Lisa Wilson, Tony Judge, James Colgan, Scott Berger, Philippe and Elizabeth Lima. So this was our last week shouting out all of our Patreon supporters uh, for now. Uh, thank you guys so much for all that you do to make this show happen. We couldn't do it without you. And you are a part of this community. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the blithely young, tactfully hip, and evidently lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. I think you could have oh my God. hammed it up more every, with your... Ev- every week. Could, and evidently... Evidently. Lay editors, but that's... For, neither could, here nor there. No, neither here nor there. Yes. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Olga. Hi, good Zach. to be with you. Hello, Zach. <laughs> good to be back. Uh, did you guys have a good Labor Day weekend? It's been been a while. Wow, since you're right. Yeah, it has. Yeah. It's been yeah. yeah. It's been really good. Really nice. Really relaxing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Me and Zach joined a rock climbing gym. Yes. <laughs> Zach's athletic. Now. We're super swole. <laughs> I have, I know. We, I feel we've talked about it on the podcast before my dislike of all things working out. Um, and you finally found something. Yeah. That, like r- rock climbing is really fun. Yeah. That's also. Really it just makes hard. you like feel like a kid on a playground again. Mm-hmm. What are we drinking, Zach? So uh, the humidity has finally broken, and so fall is acting like it's here. But we're going to hold on to the last days of summer while we can. So we have our last summery drink. Uh, well, maybe a Saint Germain spritz. So it's uh, lots of parts prosecco, little parts Saint Germain, and a little bit of lemon juice stirred together with ice. It's delicious, it's refreshing, so and it's making me forget about all the rain outside. Mm-hmm. So cheers. cheers, cheers. And who are we talking to this week, Olga? This week we're chatting with Katie Prejean McGrady. She is a Catholic speaker, writer, and author of Follow Your Lifelong Adventure with Jesus. And earlier this year, Katie was sent by the USCCB to be one of the delegates at the pre-synod gathering that happened in March. And this is the pre-synod gathering in preparation for next month's gathering of bishops, Synod on Young People. And so we talked to Katie a little bit about what it was like to give a bunch of bishops the scoop on young people and cool things she's seeing in young adult ministry these days. But first, it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So our first story comes from India, where in the state of Kerala, 7,000 people took to the streets over the last week to protest or to call for the removal of a bishop who has been accused of raping a nun. Yeah, so this is, uh, we don't have all the details on this. It's a complicated story. This nun accuses this bishop of having raped her, I think, 13 times over the course of three years. The bishop says that um, this nun is using, is blackmailing him basically to cover up for an affair that she's having. So it's there is a criminal as these Mm -hmm. cases often are. But clearly there are a lot of people who find her claim to be credible because thousands took to the street. There is a criminal investigation pending right now and... So far, the higher church level is waiting until that finishes before it conducts its own investigation. We wanted to bring you guys this story because we've been talking a lot about the sexual abuse crisis in this country, but we also wanted, it's something that's also affecting the global church, so we wanted to make sure to highlight that this week. And that ties into our next story. Um, A new letter has surfaced that gives evidence that Vatican officials knew of former 
Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, um, his allegations of sexual misconduct and abuse as early as 2000. Yes. So Father Boniface Ramsey, who is a pastor at St. Joseph's Church in New York City, he says that it back in 2000, he sent a letter to Archbishop Gabriel Montalvo, who was then the apostolic nuncio to the in the U.S., um, informing him of complaints that he had received about McCarrick's behavior um, toward young seminarians. So one of the big questions that has remained since we learned um, earlier in the summer about allegations that then Bishop McCarrick uh, abused seminarians while he was in New Jersey is who at the Vatican knew this. And so this letter confirms that at least in 2000, when John Paul II was Pope, that this information did make its way to the Vatican. What we don't know is where it went from there. Right. So the letter stating that there was some shady stuff happening at this beach house that McCarrick had in New Jersey, um, inviting seminarians to share his bed and and various other things. But we still don't know what what information was passed from nuncio to nuncio, from pope to pope. Um, I don't know if we have any way of finding out this type of thing, um, or if that's even a dumb question or a knowable question, right? But I think it's important that we keep asking because their details continue to be added to this story. And we should say that, just breaking today, recording on Tuesday, that the Vatican announced today that Pope Francis is going to be meeting with uh, some leaders of the U.S. Church. So some of the top U.S. bishops are going to Rome to meet with the Pope to talk about this, presumably. In other sex abuse news, uh, since the grand jury report in Pennsylvania was released, which detailed uh, sexual abuse by over 300 priests against over 1,000 victims, uh, law enforcement in at least seven states have launched their own investigations uh, into the records of dioceses um, with regards to sexual abuse. Yeah, so New York Catholic dioceses have been subpoenaed by the the Attorney General, and there are more dioceses launching investigations. I think we've seen them in New Mexico, uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, in Chicago. Jersey, Florida, in, Missouri, Illinois. Vermont. Yeah. Um, wow. in, I guess we could just say that... Uh, Catholic dioceses need to be co- should be cooperating fully, right? And, right. and so far, they have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, where these uh, inquiries have been announced, dioceses have been coming forward and saying we are going to cooperate. Right. We'll see if that actually right. happens. And they should just continue to make it as easy as possible because this grand jury report out of Pennsylvania took two or three years. Um, so it's important for dioceses to make it as easy as possible because if not, this is just going to drag on for years, for years, decades, correct. maybe. Yeah, but we we did want to, it is back to school season. And so for our last story, we wanted to uh, show some bright spots happening in the U.S. church. Um, the first Catholic school for students battling addiction is opening in the Bethlehem, Pennsylvania area. So this is the first faith-based type of high school of its kind um, where students who are in alcohol and drug addiction recovery programs can go. It's slated for opening of fall 2019, but that's not the only first that's happened with Catholic schools. Right. In the city of Baltimore, uh, the first this is the first Catholic school that's going to be opened up in decades, and it's going to be named after uh, Servant of God, Mother Mary Lang. She was an African-American nun who founded the first U.S. school for black children. We've talked about her in previous episodes, um, and it's really encouraging that this school is going to be named after her. And I think that's so, yeah, that's so important for students to have, especially students of color, to have mm-hmm. saints that they can look to. And, you know, a lot. I think we see a lot of people getting their names removed from Catholic schools. In fact, for- this school was supposed to be named after a cardinal from Pennsylvania and was removed because he was involved in the Pennsylvania report. 
Yeah. So this was a response to that and a very, a very positive one, an encouraging one. This would be a restorative choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's fair to say. Today we are talking on Skype with Katie Prejean McGrady. She was a U.S. delegate sent by the USCCB to the Vatican's pre-synod gathering of young people earlier this year. Welcome to Jesuitical, Katie. Hey guys, how are you? We're great. Uh, so we thought we'd ground this conversation just a little bit with some stats. We know that we hear talk about young people being disengaged with the church all the time. Uh, just one quick thing is that 1990, there were 10 million people who referred to themselves as former Catholics, according to CARA. Uh, and last year, that number was more than 30 million. We know lots of young people increasingly are becoming part of that group who call themselves I was raised Catholic, but... Yeah, and this is why the church has called together uh, this meeting of bishops in October, uh, which you've been a part of the planning for. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about what your involvement has been? Um, So I got a call in December of 2017 from the USCCB inviting me to attend this pre-synod gathering. And my first question was, what's a pre-synod gathering? Um, (laughs) What's a synod? (laughs) Yeah, what's a synod? I mean, I knew what that was, but like I didn't think lay people under 30 got to be involved, which is true. That's very rare. Um, yeah. So synod, for for people who don't know, a synod is a gathering of bishops. So this this meeting was with 300 other people from like all over the world. Uh, what were some of the things that you all came together and agreed on and like was the big takeaway that you wanted the bishops to come away with before the synod? Um, a lot of us realized really quickly that we kind of really are in crisis. Um, when it comes to young people. So like, for example, in Germany, there was a young man in my group named John who talked about how at the parish that he goes to, the priest that comes and says mass once a month is only able to do so because he has three other parishes that he also serves. So one priest for four parishes and each one gets a weekend. In Africa, the thing I was most struck by was, yeah, they have booming church life. Um, At least that's what we see from the outside looking in. But the young woman from Ethiopia that was actually in my my group, she kept talking about just how like the church is so corporate in in her experience in Africa. And I was like, wait, what? Like everything I've always heard about the African church is that it's on fire and that and that it's people passionate and they've got these three hour masses. And she was like, oh no, it's very much a business. And so like that was really surprising to me to like hear her speak so bluntly because like I would call our church very corporate in America. Never would have called the African church corporate. But in her experience, as somebody that has helped, you know, do youth ministry in the diocese and work for the diocese, that's what she's experienced. Um, So I think kind of the name of the game for this whole gathering was everybody's perspective going in was kind of flipped a little bit. I think my big takeaway was like, I don't know what I don't know. And that's a good thing. Because we as a church, I think oftentimes get very stuck in our perspectives and our attitudes. And I think it's good to be stretched a little bit. It's good to it's good to be shaken up. Speaking of being shaken up, what are your hopes for next month's synod? Well, I hope it doesn't turn into a referendum on abuse is bad, because we know that. We know abuse is bad. Um, I do think we need to address all of that, right? It's the elephant in the room, but I hope it doesn't get co-opted into that conversation only. Yeah, because there are, um, there are I, bishops who are saying that we should just cancel this synod and talk about right. the sex abuse crisis. But you, so you yeah. would disagree with that? I mean, I think we need to talk about it. I, I'm not. I would never want to say that that this is something that we need to ignore, right? All things need to come to light. But like, I I think 
that deserves its own synod, right? Mm-hmm. Like that deserves its own conversation, not this one. I think, and you get into that in your latest piece for America, because I think when all of the news, we've been covering the sexual abuse crisis for some time now in episodes. And there was a time where I was like, I can't imagine going to Rome as a young person and sitting down with this pe- with bishops in this day and age and trying to listen to what they're saying. But in your piece, you say that now more than ever, we really kind of need to get together and have these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. I think young people bring a lot of um, fresh perspective and hope that the bishops would greatly benefit from right now. Wait, um, so, but in October, young people aren't going, right? It's just bishops? So there will be some young people. Okay. Um, so there are auditors for the mm-hmm. Synod. So we actually have one from the United States, Jonathan Lewis, mm. um, who works for the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. So the auditors essentially like take notes and make sure that the document reflects the conversation. Um, so they're they're kind of the I don't want to call them the B team because they're mm-hmm. essential, but there will be some young people there in the room. And then we also know that none of these bishops are disconnected while they're there. I mean, I know for a fact I'll have conversations with a couple of our U.S. representatives while they're over there to kind of keep in touch and make sure that we're on the right track as far as what comes out in this final document um, that they will present to the Pope, who will then use it to write his apostolic exhortation. So it's not just the bishops locked in a room. It's not conclave mm-hmm. by any means. The synod is a very collaborative process. And I think, I mean, it's probably too late to do this, but I think they should invite a few more young people to the table now, you know, like Archbishop I think, I think the, I got think the four of us yeah. would, would yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our names let's in. go. Yeah. So, yeah, but, let's go. so I think the concern some people have or that, you know, that even I have, I, I do think this synod should happen. But I think it's fair to say that the credibility of bishops is kind of mm. at a low point. Um, yeah. So it's it's hard for me to imagine young people really receiving whatever message does come out of this gathering. So what do you think? Right. What do you think the bishops can do at this point to ensure that whatever fruit there is from the synod that like young people will actually pay attention to it? I think it's twofold. I think one, um, a synod is the work of the spirit. And so None of us are Catholic because of sinful bishops, right? We're Catholic because of Jesus Christ and because of the Eucharist. So that my hope would be that young people can kind of rise above any distrust we might have. So I think I think that's the first thing. We need to recognize that the, the, the work of the Spirit will be at hand in this gathering. The second is a lot of this synod is going to result in action plans and programs that youth workers, so young adult ministers, youth ministers, are going to have to take from the pages of this document, okay, here's what we now do. The average teenager in America is not going to read the post-synodal exhortation of the Synod on Youth, Faith, and Vocational. My mom's not going to read the apostolic exhortation, right? Like, because like the average nominal Catholic is not actually swept up in most of this stuff. Um, so I think a lot of it's going to come down to after the Synod finishes and we actually have documents and we have writings, then these action plans that come forth and the unpacking that happens. What are, what are some of the things you are hoping to see in those action plans in this document? So I, I hope that sacramental prep gets completely turned on its head. Um, what, do you, what do you mean? So like less taking attendance at confirmation class and more actually teaching young people about the Holy Spirit. And I'm probably going to make some enemies by saying that, but like it's not school. It's inviting the Holy Spirit to a young person's life. Let's actually do that. I mean, I really, I have a, I have a stick in my, my jaw about confirmation. <laughs> attendance. Like I really do. Like I think it just automatically turns a kid off to like, you have to go to this, this number of sessions and you have to do this overnight retreat and you have to write this paper and then you can be confirmed. Well, that's turning sacramental confirmation into a contractual confirmation, right? Like it's turning it into a, I do this and then you give me the spirit. Um, so I hope it, it kind of revisions that. I hope it revisions the way young people contribute to the church. Um, so I think a lot of times 
young people are relegated to the cheap seats when it comes to Catholicism. Um, they're either the problem to be solved, yeah. they're the mm-hmm. kids that made a mess in the parish hall, or they're the ones that can clean up after like the you know the adult gathering. Like that that's been my experience a lot of times. Like they're just kind of put into this separate category rather than they're an active part of the life of the church. I hate the term youth mass. It's mass. And young people just happen to be engaged more in the work of the liturgy. But like, why can't that happen at the 9 a.m. mass? Why does it have to happen at 7 p.m. in the evening? I mean, some young people don't like going to nighttime masses. Like some young people like to go to the morning mass. Like, why aren't they included in that? So I hope this document kind of helps set a precedent for, look, the Pope wants young people to be engaged in the life of the church, not just the life of the young church, but the life of the church. And we all need to be at the forefront of that. I mean, this is the church my daughter's going to grow up in. So I, I really hope that the document results in a new way of looking at how we treat and how we minister to youth and young adults. Um, you mentioned your daughter. I think one of the things that as women, we, you know, growing mm-hmm. up as we see equality growing between men and women, we still have to think about the role of women in the church. Um, so do you think bishops understand that and sort of what are they going to do to respond to that? Ha. I hope none of them are listening. Um, I think <laughs> So that was actually, we, so we came back from the pre-synod end of March. Um, and like a month and a half later, we get an email from the USCCB saying that the bishops have requested that the three of us that went get to go address the bishops' conference. Um, so they gave us 45 minutes. We ended up talking up there for 90. So we gave like our presentation, and then the bishops lined up and started asking questions, which was awesome because, you know, those men could be my dad or my grandfather. Um, and now they were like listening to what we had to say. So it was a pretty cool moment, uh, you know, as a young woman who spent my life in the church and now working for the church. And the last question was from Cardinal Tobin, Cardinal Joe Tobin, who actually wrote me, I don't know if you can see the little note up there. I wrote him a thank you note and he wrote me one back. So his question was, and now more than ever, the Pew research is showing that women are leaving more quickly than men. Um, And he said, but you stayed. So can you tell me why? And so my answer to his question, um, which I actually started my answer off by saying, I hope I don't get in trouble when I say this, But I think a lot of people think that if a young woman wants to be involved in the church or contribute to a conversation, she automatically wants a collar, which is not the case at all. Like, I don't want to be a priest. I can actually do a lot more without being a priest, for the record. Um, I can go go to a lot more places than, say, a man that's ordained and, like, stuck in in a certain diocese or, like, ordained and and has, like, obedience and responsibilities as, as a pastor. Like, as a lay woman, I think I can do a lot. The problem is not a lot of other people think that. And so it's a matter of inviting young women to the table. It's a matter of saying, like, you've got a gift. You've got something that you can contribute. We want to listen to you. We want to hear from you. And not think that a woman can can only be used for what a priest or a man can't do, right? Like, that they're not just there for the leftovers or for the extra, but that like they could be part of the actual work. So a perfect example would be Bishop Van over in the Diocese of Orange. The chancellor of his diocese is a woman. She's a PhD theologian. She used to teach at the Augusta Institute. Like he gave her a canonical position in his diocese because he knew she was capable of it. We need more of that, right? We need more women who are brought to the table because of their intellect and because of their gifts and because of their talents, not just to fill the woman quota or not just because they couldn't find a dude that could do it. Um, and I don't think that's that's a, a commentary on the, the work of every bishop by any means. Um, my, in my own diocese, my bishop has brought so many women to the table, myself included. So, so I think it's just kind of a general, like, we have to do a better job of inviting women to the table and listening to them once they're there. And the document that you guys produced mentioned sort of hot button issues or teachings that young people increasingly disagree with. But uh, are, are, you sa- are you saying that, like, we don't necessarily need to change those to re-engage young people? 
I don't think we need to change the teachings of the church. I think we just need to do a better job articulating them, right? Like a lot of our issues in Catholicism, I think, is PR. We do a really bad job just saying this is what we believe and this is the fullness of truth, right? The young people that I've encountered that maybe say identify as gay or, or, or lesbians um, or are struggling with transgenderism, when you articulate to them the teachings of the church, and but, but you first say, but we love you and we want you here, well, that changes the game. Now I'm not just fussing at you and you shouldn't go do this because it's contrary to nature. Instead, I'm saying who you are is beautiful in the eyes of God, and we love you for who you are, and we want to walk with you on your journey, right? Like That's what I think the document was saying, that first we must come from this place of I care about you, and then we can articulate here's the truth. And that's the model of accompaniment, right? That's the, that's the Emmaus walk. Jesus had this conversation with these two men and, and he didn't just shove the truth of the resurrection down their throat. He unpacked with them, okay, how are you feeling? What are you thinking about? What's going on in your heart and your mind? And then he, then he shared with them, like, this is what really truly happened, and their hearts are set on fire. Um, I think that's how we articulate those tough teachings. And you know something Jonathan Lewis shared with me once uh, is that on the Emmaus walk, they're walking away from Jerusalem yeah. in the quote-unquote wrong direction. Yeah, and their hearts are still set on fire. Yeah. yeah. Katie, you like, you, I think a lot of, you know, young Catholics probably aren't friends with priests and bishops and and you are. So you're you've had these interactions. So what advice would you give to someone who wants wants to, you know, reinvigorate the youth or young adult life at their parish or, you know, just get those conversations started? Yeah. I mean, I I feel like sometimes our pre- we put we put our priests in ivory towers and we put our bishops in mansions. And we forget. Well, well that they, they do that to themselves too. <laughs> they do that to themselves. And Twitter, Twitter explodes, and they cancel the real estate deal, <laughs> or they throw extravagant birthday parties with fireworks. Uh, but uh, I tweeted about that, and some people got mad. Um, but I think, I think the, I mean, clericalism by definition, I think is is people use the word anytime they don't like something about a priest, like, oh, that's clericalism, right? And it's like, no, it's not. It's just the priest being the priest. I think clericalism is when we put the priest on a pedestal and the priest lets themselves stay there. And so, like, I I don't think we need to be afraid. Like, that's father so-and-so who's somebody's son, probably somebody's brother or uncle um, or, or, you know, nephew. Like, they have a family, they have a background, they have a life, they have likes and dislikes. The best priest friends I have are guys that I text office gifts to. Like, really, like, that's that's the majority of our conversations are just like, hey, I'm watching this episode and it made me laugh. And that human out, like that human connection. So when young adults want to reach out to a, a priest or to a bishop or like wants to start building that relationship, I think it needs to start from a very simple place of like, I want to get to know you. I want to get to know who you are. You bring me the sacraments. That's hugely important in my life. Like, that means that you're important in my life. Like, that means I want to know what's going on in your life. Just like, hey, why don't you come over to dinner? Like, you know, our house is kind of messy and the food might be burnt, but like, you look like you could use a home-cooked meal and some conversation over a glass of wine. That's not about, you know, parish finances. Um, and that's, I, anytime Tommy and I have, my husband and I have priest friends over for dinner, we have a rule, no shop talk. Like, we can talk about ministry, like maybe where where I've been going or like what you have on your mind, but like, we're not going to talk about the life of the parish. We're not going to talk about like the inner workings of the finance council at this, at this dinner. We're just going to hang out. We're just going to be people together. And we always tell the priest, please feel comfortable with just coming in your civvies. Like, we're not going to put it on Facebook or Instagram that you didn't wear your collar. Like, just come over and hang out. And like a lot of priests have told me that they've, that's that's given them a sense of freedom and like they can be kind of off 
And like the fact that they feel like they always have to be on breaks my heart because that's going to get exhausting for them. That's got to break priests too. It like it does. Yeah. Absolutely it does. And so like I, I really think that's it's a ministry for us to reach out and treat them like people. Absolutely. And then they get to minister to us because you get the, you, your, your priest is in your house. Like what what does that say to a young kid who maybe is discerning a vocation and like father comes over and plays board games with us? Like priests can play board games. Like that might inspire a vocation. Or Fortnite. <laughs> or Fortnite. <laughs> I mean, Papa Scrappa, that's what he does on his day off, right? Like he pops his headphones on and he plays mm-hmm. he plays video games the whole time. Like I think that that is important to see them as people first. Right. Right. Um. Thanks, Katie. This has been great. So yeah. one final Sorry, question for you. No. 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 No worries. Yeah. We we ramble a lot on the show too uh but one final question for you if you could canonize anyone catholic or non-catholic living or dead who would it be and why oh gosh fictional or not so office characters yeah are... it could be michael oh, it scott could be... yeah, it, it could be could... fictional oh, michael scott oh man mm. <laughs> saint leslie nope patron saint of law <laughs> i think she's got a tenacious um tenacious spirit about her that some some catholic workers could learn from so so saint leslie nope from Parks and Rec. All right. Parks and Rec. I'm super nice. into that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Awesome. Katie. Not where... the sexual immorality, but all the other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Katie, Katie, where can uh, people Sick. find your work? Hang on. Uh, Katie Frazier. <laughs> Let's redo that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm like, you're uh, really going to keep us straight. No, no. <laughs> I tried to just uh, um, fail through that. Katie, where can people find your work? They can find me at uh, katieprejean.com and on Twitter and Instagram at katieprejean. And then my husband and I are hosts of our podcast, The Electric Waffle. So you can find it at theelectricwaffle.fireside.fm. And what, what do you guys talk about, by the way? You... Um, Catholic culture and just kind of the chaos of our lives. We're very busy people. Um, but we interject a lot of office and parks and rec clips throughout the episode. Awesome. Amazing. Nice. Well, thank you so much. This Thanks, has been Katie. great. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. All right. Now it's time for some listener feedback. Uh, first, Jesuitical t-shirts are really great, and you can get yours at jesuitswag.com slash jesuitical. They're really cool. They're a beautiful color blue, and they have Pope Francis on them, um, and everyone should get one. And if you don't want to pay for it, well, you would still be paying for it. But if you join us on Patreon and support our show every month through a donation, then we will send you a t-shirt and other cool swag, too. All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? So I've got a consolation this week. Um, As we've been processing the sexual abuse crisis together um, for some weeks now in in previous episodes, um, and the last episode and just the last few weeks, I'd been feeling really, really down and sort of being really negative about not wanting to join the church and thinking that I don't have positive examples of people who encourage me to want to be more Catholic. Um, But this week I've been having a lot of conversations with the women in my family about their immigration stories, what it was like to come to America and still keep their faith through the various traumas that they might have experienced. Um, And it was just really, really encouraging to just listen to these women and be like, Oh, you think that they're, 
are that God isn't present in your life, look at like you have these women in your family um, who show you that God is present and active in your life. So that was really consoling for me. What do you got, Ashley? Um, I have a desolation also kind of related to how I've been processing the news about sex abuse. I realized in the past like week or so that I've really been I've been processing it in a very performative way. And that's partly because of the job that I have. Like I I have to talk about my reaction to this news on Jesuitical and I've been on the radio show and I I tweet about it and all of that. And so I think a lot of my energy has been like going into saying the right things and like trying to get the right reaction on Twitter. And I really I've been taking all of this to Twitter and not to prayer. Like I really haven't been praying about it at all. Um, and so I I just noticed, like especially in like this morning, I like had a tweet about like Pope Francis saying that seem he said something and I thought it was insensitive. So I tweeted about it. And then I was like trying to see if I got a good reaction to that on Twitter. And it's like I should be taking that energy and actually like praying about this and seeing what God has to say to me about this crisis and not just, you know, looking for Twitter reactions because I mean, God can work through Twitter, I'm sure, but I I certainly haven't been looking for God there. Um, And so I think if I'm going to be able to keep doing this public role in responding to um, the sex abuse crisis, I need to ground it in prayer, which I just have not done yet. So, yeah, a little desolating. What about you, Zach? It's like what St. Francis says, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, tweet. Sorry, is that, insens- is that an insensitive no, no, joke? It's right. fine. <laughs> what well, do you have? I mean, mine is related. So uh, this weekend I was uh, traveling to um, cluster of parishes to uh, do a mission appeal. So like raise money for uh, this organization I'm a part of, the US China Catholic Association, which meant that I was going to mass all weekend guy. long. Yeah, it was that guy who, instead of a homily, gives you a pitch for why you should donate. Um, but I was going to four masses over the weekend between two parishes. And so I've never done that before where I've just sort of gotten this long, loving look at a parish community, even my own, right? Like if you get your own parish, you just go once. Um, and I had every reason to kind of think this was not going to be a fun weekend um, from just sort of traveling to uh asking the church for money in the time when people that might not have positive feelings for the church. Um, but I'm up there and the welcome I got the people of God that I saw just like doing normal everyday things like, um, caring for their disabled children, like just showing up to mass more than once. The, the, the nun who was running the youth group and trying to get people to come to the bolathon and raise money for it. Like I was literally moved to tears listening to her, raise money for the youth group after church. And I, and I realized I've been spending so much time, like, as you mentioned on Twitter, focusing on like, um, the, the Pope and the bishops and the news, the headlines, right? That is, that is the church, but it's, the church is also the people of God just showing up week after week, ministering the best way they can to their families, to their communities. And so that was my consolation as being, so, I'm sure a lot of people listening are that person, right? You know, maybe you don't live in the headlines. And if you do live in Catholic Twitter too much, just log off. And so thank you. If that is you, you brought Christ to me in a very profound way this weekend. So that was my consolation. It's good. Good reminder. All right. Judge Whittacle is brought to you by American Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs provided by Brandon Sanchez. 
Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup SJ. Engineering by Emma Winters. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to 42 Lacks. Finally, you can send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at AmericaMedia.org. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week.